1789, Captain William Bly of the HMS Bounty was commissioned a journey from England to Tahiti to gather breadfruit plants and take them to the West Indies. They would be at sea for over a year, and in the end, they would circumnavigate the whole earth. But Bly never completed this mission. The journey was long. The work was hard. The seas were rough. The captain was known to demand discipline and and handed out harsh punishments for laziness and disobedience. To make matters worse, the living conditions were quite cramped. And by the time they reached Tahiti, the men were elated to to get off the ship. They had a five-month layover in which they would collect the plants. Most of the men took up relationships with women on the island. They lived a life of drunkenness and immorality and ease. This was island life, and, and they lived like kings. But the time came to make the long and an arduous trip back home, and the men now dreaded getting back on the ship and, and living life at sea, that almost year journey to, to return home. And so three weeks back at sea, most of the men, led by Lieutenant Fletcher Christian, organized a mutiny, famously known as the Mutiny on the Bounty. They pro- protested the harsh conditions and severe discipline inflicted by the captain, And having gained control of the ship, the captain and 18 of his loyal followers were set adrift on the launch boat while the rest of the men took the ship and sailed away. They took the HMS Bounty back to Tahiti. They were going to have their own way, and they were going to have their own paradise. Christian knew he couldn't return to Tahiti, though. He would be found out as the leader. And so 16 of the mutineers were going to take their chances. They settled on Tahiti. But Christian and eight others would find another island to make their new home. Before they left, though, Christian invited some native women on the ship for a little social gathering. And during this party, he cut anchor and sailed away with his new captive wives and guests. They settled on Pitcairn Island where they would establish their own paradise. They started to build a life. They had children. They built little houses. They even managed to distill alcohol from a local plant. Over time, though, can you guess what happened on this island? They all eventually killed each other. Infighting among themselves and the natives left all of the mutineers dead except one. One man was left. His name was John Adams. And he was left alive with nine remaining women and 19 children and then other natives on the island There's a lot more to this story, but I find it such an interesting tale and reflection of mankind. It's just, it's in the heart of man to go his own way. In our fallen nature, we desire autonomy. We want to be captain of our own destiny, destiny rather, and we want to be king of our own island, where we make the rules, we call the shots, we get the glory. Scripture says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. Of course, man's rebellious nature is rooted in his rebellion and rejection of of divine authority. Since the fall, man has rejected God as his head. He's turned away from God's ways and word and will. He's set aside God's law and morality. And just like Satan, he wants to to knock God off the throne and, and take it and sit on that throne. We should be king. We should be captain. And so most people live like they are. They give no heed to God and his ways. Man lives in mutiny against God and his word, trying to form his own world with his own rules. But of course, this insurrection of mankind has only resulted in disaster. Man's history has been marked by immorality and violence and suffering, proving that the way of the world is death. Just think about how much Blood has been shed throughout all of history just because men wanted to get their own way. They wanted to rule. And such is this so-called new paradise we have created. Scripture, however, reveals the great irony in man's rebellion. Man thinks freedom comes by mutiny. We rebel against God, dispose him as captain, take over the ship, And then chart our own course. Finally, we're free from God and all of his restrictions. We're unbound by his rules. This is what man has done, but such freedom has only resulted in more bondage. Man has become entirely enslaved to sin. 
He's bound and held captive by his lusts, leading only to greater suffering. And at the same time, true freedom comes by submission. This is the the great paradox of God's ways, that the way up is the way down. The world believes that by denying God and living for self, that's where you find peace and joy and, and blessing. But the opposite is true. By denying self and living for God, you find the true path of blessing. When you submit to Christ as the captain of your soul, he frees you. He then frees you from this enslavement to sin and, and lets you live life to the fullest. You realize God's ways are best. It's not like God is, is trying to restrict us because he's no fun. Rather, his commands are like a fence around a playground. And they're meant to keep us safe inside the place of blessing. And within his good bounds, we have complete freedom and liberty. And even more, as we live not to the glory of self, but to God, God makes us partakers of his glory. He invites us in. Those who reject him and go their own way will be forever separated from God and his glory. But those who humble themselves and follow God as their king will join in and delight in his glory forever. The only real question is, will you join the mutineers? Or will you stick with the captain, even if the rest of the world cuts him adrift and and discards him, will you stick with the real captain? This is, in essence, the question posed to us in Psalm 2, which we'll be studying this morning. So you can open your Bibles now to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2. Last week we covered Psalm 1, which means we just have to do Psalm 2 now because they go together. As I mentioned last week, they were originally lumped together in one psalm. Psalms 1 and 2 were not written first, but they were placed first in Israel's Psalter on purpose as the gatekeepers, for they frame what the whole book of Psalms is about. Psalms is Israel's worship book, that's true, but you can't worship this God unless you are walking in his ways. And the way of the world is false, it leads only to cursing. The way of the Lord is is true, leads to blessing. You have to walk on God's ways, passing through the gate of his son. And and Psalms 1 and 2 really frame this and, and establish this. Psalm 1 sets up this contrast between these two ways, these two paths, two destinations, more on an individual level, and we covered that last week. Psalm 2, though, covers that really at a a national level. It contrasts these two ways at a national level, and we learn that all the nations, it turns out, have gone the way of the world. They've committed mutiny against God, casting off his ways, rejecting his son, and for this, God will judge. All those who have rebelled against his ways will be brought to account. Yet although we all have gone astray, the captain offers a short window of mercy that if you will humble yourself and surrender and turn to God through his son, that you will be granted forgiveness, a pardon. He will restore you in peace. But if you refuse, well, be warned. This is the message of Psalm 2. It's a little bit long, so we'll read this as we go. Good news is it outlines itself. It's 12 verses, easily broken up into four stanzas, three verses each, each focusing on a different scene with a different subject from us to God to Christ, or rather from mankind to God to Christ to us at the end. So let's just go through the psalm now and let, it, let its message unfold along these four points, which I might describe as the history of man's mutiny. The history of, of man's mutiny against God. And we'll begin with this, man's rebellion. Number one, man's rebellion. In Psalm 2, it begins with a question. You can look there now at verse 1. Psalm 2, verse 1. It begins and says, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. It sounds like there's trouble. This word for uproar speaks of a disgruntled assembly conspiring together against something. 
There's trouble brewing. Verse 1 gives you the picture of the sailors. They've gathered under the deck of the ship and they're conspiring together to overthrow the captain. They're, they're gaining steam. They're building up this plan of revolt. But in this case, it's not talking about sailors. It's talking about nations and peoples, both in the plural. Psalm 2 pictures all the nations of the earth conspiring together. But to what end? Why are they doing this? Whatever it is, it's described as a vain thing. It's vanity. It's futility. It's doomed from the start. There's no chance of success in their plans. They're like mutinous uh, sailors who've cast their captain into the sea in the middle of the Pacific. But meanwhile, none of them know how to sail or read charts. They've doomed themselves in their own rebellion. And when you get to verse 2, you realize why the plotting of the nations is so doomed. That's because it's against the Lord. Verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. These nations are conspiring against God. Doesn't sound like a smart idea. He's the maker of heaven and earth with supreme power. I mean, what are they really going to do? against God. Nevertheless, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers counsel together. Now now it's the leaders of all the nations who are conspiring against the Lord. But notice verse 2, the rage of the nations, it's not just directed at God. It's also directed at his anointed. You see that? Do you know to whom this is referring? Well, think back to King David. Saul was Israel's first king, whom they chose because he was tall and mighty, looked like a great warrior. But he fell short. He was not a man after God's own heart. He didn't walk in God's ways. And so in the end, God took the kingdom and the throne away from Saul. And for the second king, God was going to choose himself this time. And so through Samuel, we learn this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God chooses this young, small shepherd boy, David, that's because while man looks at outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. And so God chose David as king. And, and God then instructed Samuel to anoint David. This first Samuel sixteen thirteen says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. This anointing was both literal and figurative. So Samuel literally poured some oil on David's head, but it obviously had this figurative meaning signifying that this was God's choice. David was God's chosen one, the anointed one, the one whom God had set his authority for rule. David would be God's representative ruler over God's people. And the special word for this is mediator. David would be God's mediatorial king. Through David, God would rule over his people. And to take it a step further, later on, God made a special covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. And God promised that through a a special descendant of David, God would rule not just over Israel, but over all the nations, over all the earth. I'll read for you uh, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, speaks of this Davidic covenant. 1 Chronicles 17:11 says, this is God to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will settle him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Through David, God was revealing his plan for the nations, that God was going to raise up one who would be a son of David and a son of God, through whom God would bring about this everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And so back to Psalm 2 now, 
hopefully this sheds light on this, this term, the anointed one. Who is it? Well, in a near sense, this is David. This is King David, who, by the way, did write Psalm 2. Acts chapter 4, verse 25 tells us that, actually. This is a Davidic psalm. So in the near sense, this is David. But this also carries a far sense, confirmed multiple times by the New Testament. And there we learn that this anointed one ultimately is none other than Jesus. He is the son of David and the son of God. He's the Messiah. In fact, this word, anointed one, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, which is Messiah. And the Greek equivalent is Christos, which is the Christ. It means the anointed one. That's who Jesus is. He came as the son of David and the son of God, God's chosen one, the promised seed through whom God would establish his rule. However, according to Psalm 2, the nations, they don't want any part of that. Again, look at verse 2. It says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the kings of the earth, they don't want to be a part of God's kingdom. They, they want to have their own kingdom. They want their own dominion. They want their own way, their own power and rule and authority. They want to sit on the throne. They want to receive all the praise. And that's really what everyone wants in their fallen hearts, to sit on their own throne. And hence, verse 3, the time comes for their mutiny. Look at verse 3. The nations, they're saying, verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Fetters and cords refer to shackles and restraints. These words were used to describe the manner in which an animal, a beast of burden, would be tied and chained to a yoke. And the picture here is obviously one of rebellion, revolt. This is mankind breaking free from God's shackles and his ways. He's throwing off God's rules. He will not be restrained by God's manners and God's morality any longer. Why, though? Why are they doing this? Don't they know that, that God's ways are, are actually best, that they're blessed? Don't they know that the way of the wicked is hard? Why are they doing this? Why would you revolt against God? But such is the deceitfulness of sin. It, it whispers in their ear, tempting them, offering them their own glory. That, you know, if, if you just eat that fruit, you will be like God. If you just go your own way, you can have your own kingdom. You can be king. You can sit on your own throne. Everyone will bow down and, and praise you. You see, this, this worship of self, it's the root of all sin and explains all of mankind's mutiny against God from the start. But little do they know that sin has deceived them and it's enslaved them and it will kill them. There's no throne for them in reality, no lasting throne. Sin is like a slave trader coaxing man onto its ship under the promise of glory for self. But then once aboard, it cuts anchor and sails away to the abyss. Such is mankind's enslavement to sin. It offers the world to you, but it delivers only guilt and shame and hurt, suffering and death which includes eternal separation from God and his glorious kingdom. Man's is, is a foolish and futile mutiny. And so I wonder, have you learned this lesson yet? Have you come face to face with the deceitfulness of your own sins? The lusts of your flesh, they tempt you. That they offer to you your heart's desires. They promise to you satisfaction and joy and glory. So you go after them, but you get burned time and time again. You see the dark side time and time again. You get tricked. You get trapped. You find only bondage. And in some, in some way, suffering results from your course of sin. Have you learned this yet? That happened to you enough times you realized this is not the way? At the very least, learn from those in the world who have gone headlong into the way of sin, who have rebelled against God's ways. 
What's the fruit of their mutiny? Yeah, it's true. They're living on their own little island, the island of self, where they rule their king. But what's the result? They live in sexual sin, but the outcome is unwanted pregnancies, mass abortions, STDs. Also, they suffer from broken relationships and adultery, leading to emotional scars, torn families, even bloodshed. Yeah, it sounds like the sexual revolution has been great for society. And also in, in greed and materialism, they pile up all this treasure on their island. They're, they're swimming in treasure. At the same time, they're depressed. They're popping antidepressants like no other. Suicide rates are high. Some try and get away from it all, leading to an epidemic of drug addiction and alcohol abuse. It seems like some people, they're, they're trying to escape this island. They're, they're trying to get off, but there's no way off. There's no escape. Except for one. For now, a narrow bridge leads off this island. It's the way of the Lord. It passes through the, the small gate of Christ. But only a few people humble themselves enough to find it. Rather, the, the vast majority of the peoples and the nations and the kings and the rulers, they're, they're going to stay on the island. They're just fine the way they are. They're going to maintain their mutiny and rebellion against God's ways. They will not have him and his anointed rule over them. They're going to rule. They're going to do it their way. And it's just human history. Like I said, in a nutshell, this is just man's history from the beginning till now. Nothing has changed. Think back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. There you have all of mankind unified in language, and they use their unity to do what? To make a name for themselves, to rebel against God. Who cares about God and his name and his glory? We want to build this city, reaching in this tower, reaching into the heavens, to make a name for ourselves. This is the root of all rebellion, man seeking his own glory. And this being the heart of man, this being the way of man, is it any wonder that mankind unified once again in order to kill Jesus? Just think, God's anointed, he came the first time, and he visited this little island of man. And he lived among them to offer them peace, to show them the way off the island. He even invited them into his kingdom of righteousness. But what was their response? They all conspired together to cast him off and to kill him. Jews and Gentiles, Herod and the religious leaders, these are people who hated each other. I mean, the Jews and the Romans, they never agreed on anything, but they all somehow managed to set aside their differences and come together in perfect harmony to kill Jesus. They would not have God and his anointed rule over them. They might fight one another for rule, but they're certainly not going to have God rule over them. This is man's mutiny, man's rebellion against God. It started in the Garden of Eden. It's continued ever since. It's time to ask now, though, what does God think of all this? And so we find secondly here God's reaction. Number two, God's reaction. Man's rebellion, God's reaction. It comes in the, the second stanza of the psalm. Look at verse 4. We'll, we'll pick up the pace here. Verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. When you think about God's reaction to man's rebellion, I mean, what did you expect? You expect God, he's breaking out into a cold sweat up in heaven. He, he's pacing back and forth. He's like, oh, what am I going to do? They're, they're, they're conspiring against me. He's flipping through some instruction manual trying to find a plan B. I mean, what, what do you expect? How do you expect him to react to man's rebellion? No, rather, he laughs. Only this is not the laughter of a good joke. It's the laughter of, of scoffing, of mockery. God sits in the heavens. He's pictured sitting down enthroned in the seat of authority. What can mere man do to the Almighty in heaven? And furthermore, God remains seated. Verse 2, it says, the kings of the earth, they take their stand. And their rebellion against God. But God, he doesn't even bother to get up. He can deal with man's rebellion sitting down. 
Man's mutiny is, is laughable. It's like you're on a mighty battleship at war, and the enemy comes up in a little wooden canoe. And they're armed with marshmallows. And they start hurling them at the hull. They're trying to assault the battleship. It's like if that happened, you just sit there puzzled and just laugh. And you'd mock and you'd, you'd scorn them. I mean, what a joke. What can they possibly do? But likewise, God laughs at man's rebellion. Just take all the might of mankind throughout all history, even throw in our nuclear power, and, and add it all together. And before God, it, it doesn't even register on the scales. It's like a, a, a fine speck of dust. It's not even enough to tip the scales in, in either direction. That's man's power to God. God laughs and scoffs at man's attempt at insurrection. He has no chance of success. And after hearing man's speech, now God's going to speak. In verse 5, God's going to take a turn. Verse 5 says, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Now God speaks and he does so in his anger. This speaks of his indignation, his wrath, his holy hatred of unrighteousness. One of the ways those in the world have tricked their consciences into allowing them to justify their evil ways is by reshaping God into a God of only love. God is love, which means he accepts all people. He doesn't judge. He's tolerant of all things. And the greatest irony of this is the homosexual movement choosing the rainbow as their symbol. The rainbow was the symbol of God's covenant not to destroy the world again in a flood. Genesis 9. But they fail to realize, you know, why did God do that? Why did God execute every person on the planet except eight the first time with a flood. Why do you do that? Because of man's wickedness, immorality, and rebellion. He's going to do it again, just not with water. He'll use fire the next time. God is love, but his is a righteous love. He does not love evil. And God defines morality, and he has a white-hot wrath toward those who oppose his will, who do what is wrong, who shed blood, who are sexually immoral, who steal, who lie, God is love, but if he did not respond to such wickedness with judgment, that he would not be righteous. But he is both. Listen to Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. Psalm 5, verse 4 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. It says, you hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. If you don't get this, just read your Bible. And you'll find a God who is love, but he hates sin. And when he arises to judge, he will terrify the wicked in his fury. They will call on the rocks and the hills to shield them from his wrath. But in that day, there will be no place to hide when heaven and earth itself flee away and they stand bare before the great white throne. God, before that day, God has a message, though. Verse 6, he announces his message. Verse 6, God is saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Here God tells us his answer to man's mutiny. This is God's plan for the nations, for human history. He has installed his king upon Zion. God has no regard for the kings of the earth. He only regards one king, and that's his king, his chosen one, this anointed one, which we know is none other than Christ. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who will reign and rule over the nations forever. God's answer to man's rebellion involves a plan. It's a plan of salvation and judgment, both of which funnel through Christ, who is the Savior and the judge. And so let's learn more now about this. Number three, Christ's rule. Christ's rule. Man's rebellion, God's response, now Christ's 
rule. Look at verse 7. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now notice something important about verse 7. The speaker has changed. In verse 6, it was God who was speaking. But now in verse 7, it's the anointed one who is speaking. This king who has been installed by God, he is now issuing God's decree. God has decreed his will, God's plan for this mediatorial king. So verse 7, it says, he said to me, this is God the Father speaking to Christ, if you will. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now you probably wonder what that means. What does it mean for the Father to say to the Son, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Well, the good news is, in this case, the Apostle Paul just tells us. This verse is quoted several times in the New Testament, and we don't even have to interpret it, because the Apostle Paul does it for us. One time Paul was preaching to some Jews in Antioch about Christ, and he spoke to them about Christ, the Messiah who's come, lived, died on the cross, buried in the tomb, then he rose from the dead. And then Paul says this in Acts 13, 32. He says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. Just as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in, in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So here what, what Paul is doing is he's taking this verse, verse 7 in Psalm 2, and he's applying it to Christ's resurrection. This verse has nothing to do with Christ's birth. It's about his resurrection. And the resurrection, his point is, it served as the ultimate proof of Christ's sonship. Christ is the eternal Son of God, we know that. But in rising from the dead, Jesus proved that he is this anointed one. He is this Messiah. He's the Christ, he's the King of Kings. One commentator likened the tomb to a womb. And metaphorically speaking, Jesus was birthed in his resurrection. He rose to new life, that is, resurrection life. He rose victorious over the grave, now he holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand. And so really, what more proof do you need that Jesus is the son of David and the son of God? That's what the resurrection demonstrates. Paul said that in Romans 1.4, that Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That the resurrection was the demonstration of his supreme authority as the anointed one. And so the point is, in verse 7 here, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the King. He's the Lord. He's the Anointed One. And after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to where? To the Father's right hand. The Father sits in the, in the heavens. So now does Christ. In fact, even in the book of Revelation, it tells us there are two thrones in heaven. One for the Father, one for the Son. And having completed his mission... Having conquered death itself, Jesus now sits in the place of supreme authority over all the earth, Father and Son sitting together. And now in verse 8 of Psalm 2, it continues this dialogue between Father and the exalted Son in heaven. And so now verse 8, this is still the Father talking to the Son, and the Father says this now, the Son issuing, uh, repeating this to us. He says, ask of me. And I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. As the son is exalted in victory, the father is delighted to give him all things as his inheritance. He will give him an eternal throne and a house and a kingdom. The son needs only to ask and the father will give the, the title deed of the earth itself to the Son, that the Son might take possession of the whole planet for his glory. And, and you know what? In the day of the Lord, the Son is going to ask, and he will receive. 
Did you know that? That the day is coming when Jesus will come and he will take possession of the earth. And he will assert his authority over the nations. To what end? To what end will Jesus inherit the nations? Well, regarding his second coming, Jesus comes not to save, but to judge. Look at verse 9. This is the father now telling the son, regarding the nations, he says, after he inherits them, you shall break them with a rod of iron. He shall shatter them like earthenware. When you read this, you realize verse 8 is not about global missions, the son inheriting the nations. It's about global judgment. Jesus inherits the nations to destroy them. Now, we know, of course, Jesus is the Savior. Revelation 5.9 tells us that, that Jesus has purchased for God, with his own blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and, and all the redeemed from all the nations, they will inherit the kingdom of God with Christ. But those who reject will not. Those who persist in their rebellion will be judged by Christ himself when he returns. And in that day, there'll be no struggle. He will deal with man's rebellion in the same way that, that an iron bar deals with a thin clay pot. Man and his mutiny will be completely shattered. There will be nothing left. Christ will come as king with an iron scepter and will crush all the nations arrayed against his rule. And those who persist in opposing God and his anointed will be forever excluded from the kingdom. The mutiny that promised them glory will result only in death. This day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, it's spoken of all throughout the Psalms and the prophets. But why not just tell you about Revelation 19, which straight up tells us of that day when Christ will return. Speaking of the second coming, Revelation 19.11 says Christ will come on a white horse to judge and wage war. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. Verse 13, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the day in which Christ comes. And on that day, man's rebellion ends. And Christ's rule over the nations begins. All mutineers will be judged forever by Christ himself as he sets up his kingdom on earth. Right now, those in the world, they laugh at that message. They're the ones who mock and scorn at the promise of Christ coming. Like, yeah, right, okay, yeah, he's really, it's been thousands of years, like he's really going to come. It's all just ancient myth. They laugh, they mock. That's expected. That's only fitting to man's mutiny, always has been. But the question is, what about you? How do you respond to God's message? And so we finish now with number four, your response. Your response from man's rebellion to God's reaction to Christ's rule. Now your response. Look at verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Human history has been laid out. Man's rebellion and mutiny are not unknown to the Lord. In fact, the end has already been written. It's been decreed that Christ will return, and he will judge, so be warned. This psalm is a call to just wake up, show discernment, take heed to this message. There's good news in this warning, that there's still time to repent. The wicked can turn from his wicked ways, seek the Lord, and be saved from the wrath to come. The offer of salvation in Christ it still stands. So verse 11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. 
This is a call to turn from the ways of the world and self and turn to the Lord. To no longer live for and serve self, but to rather live for and serve God. This word for worship actually means serve. That's how we worship God, by serving him, by bowing down, by doing his will and heeding his ways. And it says, do so with reverence. That word just means fear. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. You have to understand that God is a holy God. He's not your casual buddy. He's the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. So bow down to him. Revere him. Fear him. Serve him. Doing so, he adopts you as sons. He invites you into his love where we don't have the fear of dread. We're not scared of him because he saved us, but we respect him. We, we bow down. Verse 12 says at the beginning, do homage to the son. Your translation might read, kiss the son. This is not a picture of two friends greeting each other with a kiss on the cheek. Rather, this is the picture of a conquered king coming and bowing down before the conquering king. The conquered king bows down in submission and he's seeking mercy that he might be allowed to live. And he acknowledges that he is king no longer. He is now merely a subject of the conquering king. And as an expression of his recognition of the authority and the rule of the new king, he will bow down and he will kiss his feet. And this is a perfect picture of what you must do to be saved. Salvation is by faith in Christ. But that doesn't just mean assenting. You know, okay, I believe Jesus. You know, he's Lord. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Yeah, I believe all that. That's not saving faith. That, that's required, right? You must believe the truth. But it's not just merely knowing some things and reciting them in your mind. And this whole notion, likewise, of asking Jesus into your heart, that's not even mentioned in the Bible once. What does that even mean? Rather, faith in Christ, if you want to know the picture of saving faith, it is this picture of complete surrender. Complete surrender. It's where you fully submit to Christ as Lord in your heart. You acknowledge that he's king here now. I've been dethroned. The self is off the throne. And Christ has taken his rightful place as the sovereign of your heart, your life. The Lord now rules your life. At the same time, you'd have it no other way because you've tasted, you've seen that he's good. He's a good king. He rules well. He saves. He loves. He adopts. He reconciles. You are happy to, to kiss the rod, to bow down, to have him rule your life. Not all who call themselves Christians have truly submitted to Christ like this. And when push comes to shove, they show their true colors. They show their true allegiance. And at that time, it's pretty easy to spot the false believer. It's only a matter of time before God's ways intersect and conflict with their ways. And that's where they show their true allegiance, that they're still living for self. They're still king. That they're going to have it their own way. Even if that means breaking God's will, turning away from God, defying his word. They're still rebels at heart. That they're living in this mutiny against God. Their faith in Christ is a false flag. It doesn't matter what the word says. You know, they're going to just, in their end, they're going to go their own way. They've not been saved. The true believer, however, of course, is still a sinner. We all still fall short in many ways. But he or she lives in true submission. They seek God's ways. They submit all of their desires to the feet of the king. and They just want to do his will. That's what pleases them now, to do his will. This is the person who prays, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Not my will be done and my kingdom come, but yours be done. They pray that, they mean that with all of their being. So is that you? Like Christ himself said, you can't just follow him. You have to first deny self. Then you can follow him. If you have not denied self, you have not followed him. 
Only then will you gain entrance into the kingdom. So like that mutineer, you've got to raise the white flag and completely surrender. You have to admit your rebellion. You have to acknowledge you deserve a just and full judgment. He would be only just to wipe you out. But then you bow down and you ask the king for mercy. Remember, Christ is the Savior, and he did die on the cross and rise from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins. He is a just judge, but he is a Savior, and the good news is he promises to grant that request of mercy to all who ask of him. He will save all those who humble themselves and seek after him and his glory. This was Paul's message. Remember back in Acts 13, he was quoting Psalm 2, preaching Christ and the resurrection. And he concluded that sermon by saying this, Acts 13, 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. You have the offer of salvation. Here's Christ and what he did for you. You can be saved if you will turn to him and his ways, but if not, be warned. The offer does not last forever. A day of wrath is soon coming, and in that day, man's island of rebellion will be destroyed. The narrow bridge of escape will be burned, and all those who were left on that island will be destroyed with it. And so again, verse 12 tells us, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And with this, Psalm 2 echoes the beginning of Psalm 1. They, they go together like this, where how blessed is the man, blessed, who does not walk in the way of the wicked, but in the way of the Lord. And I pray you respond by submitting to the king today. And you will find today new life and hope and peace, and you will inherit this eternal kingdom all by his grace. But believe today because this window of mercy is closing and you don't know what tomorrow brings. So enter into his mercy now. Take refuge in him, not in works, not in self, not in church. Take refuge in Christ, in Christ alone, the risen Savior. He's the only answer to sin and Satan and death itself. So believe in him to be saved. Now, I told you at the start the story of the mutiny on the bounty. Remember that the mutineers took the ship. They took the captain and his loyalists, put them on the launch boat, and they sailed off. Well, the captain survived. The captain, Captain Bly, he navigated that small craft some 4,000 miles to a safe harbor. And then after one year, he finally managed to make it back to England, and he brought the mutineers to justice. They dispatched the HMS uh, Pandora, and 14 mutineers were captured on Tahiti, all of them brought to justice in the end. They never found, though, Pitcairn Island or Fletcher Christian, the leader of the mutiny. And it's true that Christian escaped judgment by the hands of England. But like I said, he fell prey to his own murderous ways in the end. That the way of rebellion, one way or another, it ends in death, in this life and the life to come. Only one man of the original mutineers survived on Pitcairn Island, a man named John Adams, remember, left with all the women, all the children. This is where the story takes an interesting twist, that Adams, left alone, left alive with the natives, he changed his ways, and he used the ship's Bible to teach all the children literacy and Christianity, and he led them in an ordered, moral, and peaceful community. And when they were finally discovered many years later in 1814, 
Their community had grown to 46 people and was described as an example of Victorian morality. Adams was pardoned and left to live there. This is just a small picture of the transforming power of God's word and his will and his ways. His way is peace and life and blessing. And it doesn't matter where you live or when you live. Just live in his ways. And that's where you'll find true paradise, both in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we we praise you this morning for your word and your will and your ways. We acknowledge, we confess, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We've all abandoned you, cast you off, dethroned you, and created our own island of rule where we are king and we live for our own ways, that we live to fulfill the lust of our own flesh, defying you and, and your glory. And Lord, in this regard, you would only be just to judge, to judge all of us. No, no exceptions. We all are wicked. But we praise you, Lord, that you have caused the iniquity of us all to fall on on Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain to pay for our sins and rose from the dead, assuring him full authority over life and death itself. Lord, in your love and mercy, though you laugh at our rebellion, you show your heart by sending Christ, the anointed one, to to save us, to come to this island and, and to show us the only way out, this narrow bridge of escape. We pray, Lord, now that that we take it, that all here have taken that escape, that they have found the way of the Lord and passed through the gate of Christ, that they have humbled themselves and they believe on him. They have put you back on the throne of their hearts and repented. Show them the way, Lord. This morning, convict them and, and draw them to yourself across the bridge where they will be saved and find new life, new hope, new peace, and joy everlasting. Your ways are blessed. And for us who've, who've made that journey, who are on that way, by your grace, Lord, we, we exalt you. We thank you for rescuing us. And we just want to keep running, Lord, on this narrow bridge until we reach the shores of your kingdom. Keep us faithful on the way. and Keep us going. May we live for you and, and, and by your grace take others with us. Just renew us in our love for you, Lord. Renew us in our submission to you. The flesh still draws us away, but may we remember your ways are best. And so keep us on this narrow path. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love in sending Christ. Until that day, we give you glory. In his name we pray. Amen.